Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're transforming the political landscape. We have a really tremendous panel today. Making his politicology debut is David Becker. David is the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, a CBS News contributor, and a former senior trial attorney in the voting section of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. David, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ron. Returning to the roundup is Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's always great to have you back. Good to see you guys. Also returning is Mike Madrid, a political strategist and our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics and a former political director of the California Republican Party. Mike, welcome back. Hey, guys. Great to be back. On today's show, we'll discuss election integrity as it relates to Georgia's recent elections and former Trump legal team mastermind Sidney Powell's defense against Dominion's lawsuit. We'll examine the new evidence showing pre-planning and premeditation among multiple perpetrators in the January 6th insurrection and the astounding political donations insurrectionists made in the wake of the election. And finally, we'll talk about the heartbreaking and infuriating events in Boulder and the cyclical debate we are stuck in over guns. So to kick things off, let's talk about election security and specifically election security in Georgia. You may recall Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, who emerged as a pivotal figure through former President Trump's attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump and his allies sought Raffensperger's help to alter votes to ultimately change the results in Georgia under the guise of widespread fraud, which did not exist. And Raffensperger adamantly defended his state's certified results in November, and then again in January, when Georgia voters replaced Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler with Democrats Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. So first, David, it would be great if you could set the scene for us and sort of describe what Secretary Raffensperger was weighing as he defended the integrity of Georgia's election results in the most recent election cycle? Well, I think it really goes back to all of the preparation that Secretary Raffensperger and, uh, frankly, his colleagues all around the nation did in advance of the 2020 election, even before the pandemic hit, and then how the pandemic changed that so much. We have a real schism between reality and fantasy right now in the United States. Um, the reality of the 2020 election in Georgia and throughout the rest of the United States is that we just ran the most secure, transparent, accessible, su uh, successful election in American history. And we did it in the middle of a global pandemic. And yet there are still tens of millions of people fed by a stream of lies coming from the losing candidate in the race um, that, uh, that believe the exact opposite of that. Georgia is ground zero for this, and Georgia is a great example of this schism. Um, Georgia in 2020 had um, very accessible voting. Everyone in the state could choose to vote by mail. They could choose to vote early in person, and they did this very successfully at places like State Farm Arena, where the Atlanta Hawks play, um, and they could choose to vote on Election Day. They uh, checked every single mail ballot application 
to confirm the identity of the voter multiple times and check the ballots when they came in. The signature matching was overseen by the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, which I think most people who work in criminal law enforcement will tell you is one of the the, the most uh, effective state uh, mm. bureaus of investigation in the United States. Georgia also, very importantly, for the first time in two decades, offered auditable paper ballots, paper ballots that could actually be recounted by hand by human beings. And... This is important because in 2016 and even in 2018, they were still using electronic voting machines uh, that only recorded those ballots digitally. If you do a recount, you literally just hit a button and hope it reports out the same numbers. There's no way for human beings to check that the machines were working properly. Under Secretary Raffensperger, the state moved to an entire statewide paper system so that they could do what they did do, which was they counted those presidential ballots not once, not twice, but three times three different ways, twice using two different machine methods and once entirely by hand overseen by uh, observers from both political parties, from both campaigns. And those ballots clearly indicate on them either Trump or Biden or some other candidate um, in some cases. And now after three counts, we've confirmed that every single time Biden won by a five digit margin. Um, and Georgia voters, more so probably than voters anywhere else in the United States, should absolutely feel confident that their votes were counted accurately and that there was security. And, and, and it wasn't just Secretary Raffensperger and his staff who did an outstanding job during this whole process. Um, it was also local election officials, Democrats and Republicans who worked tirelessly to make sure this would take place. And largely their reward for it was... Um, death threats and vitriol from uh, people who were uh, upset about the outcome. Just out of curiosity, what catalyzed that decision to move to paper to a paper trail, essentially? And when did that happen? Yeah, and I don't actually use the term paper trail. These are paper okay. ballots. The, ba- the, the, the ballot itself, the, the, the record of the voter's intent is on the ballot. And those are the ballots. It isn't some separate receipt or something Got like that. Got it, okay. But that being said... It has been the consensus of people who work in election security like myself for some time that we need an indelible uh, record of the voters' intent at the time they cast the ballot. Right now, that is paper. Whether they be Democrats or Republicans, we see states moving to paper. In 2016, for instance, about roughly 75 to 80 percent of all voters voted on paper. But that excluded states like Georgia and South Carolina and large portions of North Carolina and Virginia and Pennsylvania, which are obviously very important states, especially when you look at the presidential map. All of those states in 2020 were all paper. Every single battleground state had auditable paper ballots. And we saw more audits of those ballots than ever before. That is a best practice. It is consensus. It is not political. And we could see the value in that um, when uh, when those ballots can be recounted. I think, interestingly, um, the Trump campaign had the opportunity to recount ballots in Pennsylvania and Michigan Mm -hmm. and Wisconsin. I think we all remember in 2016, the Jill Stein campaign paid for recounts in those three states statewide, and they did confirm the results that Trump won all three states narrowly and did win the presidency. Um, In 2020, the Trump campaign had the opportunity and certainly had the funds to pay for that. um, And they chose to recount out of those three states, only two counties in Wisconsin and neither of which ran um, the famous Dominion voting system software, even though there were other counties in the state that did run that, those, those systems. So they basically bypassed the opportunity to have a hand recount and review the review of those paper ballots. 
So put your money where your mouth is, maybe. <laughs> Mike, in a tweet earlier this week, Raffensperger equated the false claims of widespread voter fraud in 2020 with Georgia's contested 2018 gubernatorial election. And in the in the tweet, he says, for two years, at Stacey Abrams spread the same conspiracy theories about Georgia's elections that have been used since November to devastating effect. Securing Georgia's elections means acknowledging baseless, stolen, I put that in air quotes, election claims are a bipartisan problem. So can you help us understand why Raffensperger seemingly is conflating 2020's false claims over voter fraud with 2018's alleged voter suppression? There's two different things going on here. Well, I think the bigger point is, and I agree with Raffensperger, I think that the bigger point is that this has become a tactic that both sides have used, and it's unfortunately a tactic that I have seen through the better course of my 30 years as a practitioner. You know, one side talks about ballot integrity uh, and fraud. The other one talks about voter suppression. These are all very legitimate concerns that we must, as an American people, be very vigilant to be watching. But the accusations that are levied from both sides do suggest that it is a far bigger, far more widespread problem than they actually are. I want to be very careful when I say that because I will get tremendous and extraordinary blowback because people have bought into this idea that this is a very, very common tactic that is used nationally by both sides. The truth is the examples of both voter fraud and voter suppression are remarkably small in a, in a country where there are many, many tens of millions of people voting. And as David accurately pointed out, even in the middle of a global pandemic, mm -hmm. we had an extraordinarily successful election. That does not mean that we should not remain vigilant, always vigilant. But it also means we should put it into perspective and not fall into these partisan silos because whether the attack comes from the right or from the left, whether they come from our heroes or our villains, it starts to undermine confidence in the system. And that's the ultimate danger. We will always find these few exceptional examples, and I fully acknowledge that they're becoming less exceptional when the president of the United States is actively uh, asking people to undermine the integrity of the elections. I fully acknowledge that, fully agree with that, have been completely critical of that. But by and large, these examples have been very few and far between. And it is important to remember that the vast majority of our history as a, as a country have largely um, been about having fair and honest elections, okay? Not always. And I think with increased scrutiny, we're getting better at it. And again, we just came out of a very successful one. But the point here is that both sides engage in this type of dangerous rhetoric, it is entirely legitimate to raise those concerns about these elections when there is demonstrable evidence. When there is not, and when it is for crass political purposes, the only, the only end game here is to undermine our confidence in the legitimacy of the office holders who are making decisions and the process itself. That is perhaps the greatest threat to our democratic institutions at this moment in time. I fully believe that, that we can beat back these fringe elements that are attacking our institutions. I think we need to fight them vigorously. But what is very difficult to fight against is, again, something that David pointed out, 
you know, you've got a good third of the American people who believe that the most uh, uh, transparent, competent election in our history that was just held was somehow rife with voter fraud and is illegitimate. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. That's the design. And unfortunately, and I'm not trying to make a, a, an equivocal comparison here, um, it's dangerous when it comes from both sides. And it's rhetoric that should not be allowed to be acceptable without evidence. And it's incumbent upon people from their own parties to step up and call out their own leaders the way Raffensperger did. It's, it's just as imperative that people on the Democratic side of the aisle stand up and say this is uh, inappropriate rhetoric without demonstrable evidence at the same time. So, Lucy, the New York Times reported that in December, Raffensperger voiced his support for ending no-excuse absentee voting, saying it opens the door to potential illegal voting, even while he was in the midst of defending Georgia's electoral system against accusations from Trump that the election was rigged. So how are you thinking about Republicans, even those who will defend democracy from false claims of voter fraud, being so willing to support some of the same forms of voter suppression? Well, I think that we have to be really careful when we talk about vote by mail and, you know, sort of more broadly absentee voting. Um, because well, first, we should say that it, it appears that in Georgia, um, that controversial provision that had been proposed that would be part of a package in Georgia to, you know, do away with some of these kind of um, cherished uh, voting voting options, that the provision to do with doing away with absentee voting will not be part of that package. And that's a that's good news for people who want to expand and maximize voters' ability to vote. Ditto in Iowa, where uh, a package just went through a couple of weeks ago. You know, there are some problematic aspects of that, but mail-in voting has remained intact. I think that we have to not only ask Republicans to be honest with themselves about the fact that before 2016, mail-in voting was a thing that Republicans loved and did well with and used at, at high rates. But we also need to ask Democrats to be honest about their rhetoric around these issues more broadly. There's a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week by Karl Rove um, about whether these sort of bills going through these state legislatures represent voter suppression or whether this is, you know, and sort of left-wing scare tactics gone wild. And one thing that Karl Rove, who is not exactly like a guy that I would say is like a champion of democracy, but one thing that Karl Rove says is that he notes that some of the provisions in various states that Democrats now are either holding up as these are sort of like core cherished voting tactics or things that they claim Republicans are doing to suppress votes are are not even voting options in some blue states, in states like New York or Connecticut and others. And so I think that I am for maximizing people's ability to vote anyway, anyhow, let's get as many voters as possible. But I think that it would really help Democrats in their messaging on this if they would also say to Democratic state legislatures around the country, you should be looking to maximize voting options as well. David, you're nodding. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think uh, Mike and Lucy bring up so many important um, and absolutely right points. Too often, 
uh, and this isn't just this past year, but it's gotten much worse in this past year. The debate is defined by two kind of binary opposites. One, uh, the extreme right says it's either integrity and fraud that we're concerned about. And the extreme left says it's accessibility and suppression that we care about. And so many of the successful election procedures that have been implemented by states, both red and blue across the country, encompass both of those. It is They are not polar opposites. They often go hand in hand. One of the things I like to point out a lot is that early voting and mail voting is not only really great as an option for voters for convenience. It's also an important integrity measure. The more we spread voting out over a series of days, the more likely it is that we're going to discover fraud or we're going to discover some kind of cyber event that infected a voter database, for instance, as was attempted to some degree in 2016. Um, So much of these things work together. Arizona has found that to be true. Arizona has a long history with very successful mail voting that their voters like and have very, very successful, secure elections. Georgia has found that to be true. And if we look at states like Florida, Georgia, Ohio, and Iowa, I like to talk about about those states sometimes because those states have a lot in common. All of those states have very accessible mail voting. All of those states have very easy early voting. All of those states have very accessible election day voting. They all have paper ballots. They all have Republican legislatures, Republican governors, and Republican secretaries of state. And the only difference you can really identify in any of those processes in those four states is that the outcome of the election in one of those states in the presidential race was slightly different than the other three. Um, and we and 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 they all run excellent elections, and I think we do need to start listening to the election professionals, the election administrators, like Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, like Secretary Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat in Michigan, who have really successfully navigated this process. Arizona's Secretary of State Katie Hobbs is another good one, um, and they uh, the the main difference is, as election officials always say, please let the margins be wide. You know, the only difference between what happened in Georgia and what happened in Florida is the margin was much narrower in Georgia. And I'll tell you, the very good election officials in Florida uh, couldn't have been happier about that, regardless of the outcome. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in 2018 and the, and the difference between Stacey Abrams and Donald Trump, essentially? Because there's a substantive difference here between actual voter suppression, even if it's not going to swing an election, and a far-fetched conspiracy that Chavez was trying to swing the election to Biden, right? These are these are two very different things, and we shouldn't conflate them. So maybe you can help our listeners parse these. So first I'll say, um, Mike is exactly right when he says this is something that infects both parties to some degree. It is not equivalent. Right now, it is much more prevalent on the right and in the Republican Party than it is in the Democratic Party. But there is a smaller segment that is less powerful that didn't have the White House as a bully pulpit that in 2016 said the machines were hacked without any evidence whatsoever. And in 2018, to a slightly lesser degree, criticized the outcome of the uh, of the Georgia election, which I've looked at all of the data. I see no evidence that voter suppression or any other effort had an impact on the outcome of that race. And I think this what this tells us is we need to reframe our discussion about this. There are things that are morally wrong that are not don't, don't have political impacts. If a single eligible voter finds a barrier, an unnecessary barrier placed in their path to cast their ballot, that's a moral problem mm. that we as the world's oldest continuous democracy should address. But it might not be a political problem. Yeah. It might not have changed the outcome of the election. 
And from my perspective, I, I am very grateful that there are people fighting that good fight to fight for every single eligible voter's right to cast a ballot with convenience and knowledge that it will be accounted accurately. But on the other hand, the political parties need to stop um, equating those two things. And um, there, there might have been circumstances, and there certainly were in 2018 in Georgia, where eligible voters found problems voting. Um, I have yet to see enough evidence that there were was a net 53,000 of those voters that would have changed the outcome of that 2018 Georgia election, which doesn't mean that raising those problems is wrong. It, we absolutely should try to correct those problems. And actually, if you look at what Georgia achieved in 2020, um, I think they, they've taken remarkable steps forward, which is why it's all the more important that they don't roll back those things that brought them that success. Yeah. And 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 the rhetorical sort of weaponizing of those claims actually, I, I think Mike is right, leads to much bigger problems with, you know, the integrity of the system and the trust in the system in the first place. How do you think about that? Well, I, I, Mike is exactly, exactly right on that. Um, there is nothing that um, our adversaries in Russia and China and Iran would like more than for American citizens to lose trust and confidence in our system of democracy. Um, we have seen them focusing their efforts on this for years, going back to before 2016. And um, their job is becoming easier because the content that they amplify is originating from places like the White House and now the former president's um, uh, platforms that he uses. And those who are um, honestly um, grifters who have, who, who have tried to raise their profile and make money by spreading these, uh, these false lies. And uh, unfortunately, the people they're victimizing are the president, former president's own supporters. I mean, the, these, it, it, is, it is really shameful to see um, People who, for whatever reason, supported President Trump, wanted him to win re-election, be targeted for dis disinformation in this way for both raising money and for other reasons and for delegitimizing American democracy. And for our listeners, if you're interested in in going deeper on this, we just had a conversation with uh, Molly McHugh and John Seifer about this very thing yesterday on the podcast. So I encourage you to check that out. Shifting gears just a little bit now on the topic of election security, uh, you know, if you're if you've been listening to the show, then you know Attorney Sidney Powell of Kraken fame is a defendant in a lawsuit by Dominion, a voting technology company for defamation. Uh, after Powell made dozens of TV appearances and online posts where she repeated unfounded claims that Dominion was, among other things, linked to communist Venezuela as part of Trump's alleged widespread voter fraud and stolen election. So on Monday, Powell claimed in a court filing that reasonable people, and I put that in quotes, wouldn't have believed her assertions of fraud in the 2020 presidential election, saying, quote, reasonable people would not accept such statements as fact, but view them only as claims that await testing by the courts. We've seen similar arguments before from Alex Jones and from Tucker Carlson vis-a-vis -vis Fox News that reasonable people should know that they're not being told the truth when they, when they, when they hear what these men have to say. So Lucy, what does it say that when held to account in a courtroom, the best defense that these prominent conservative voices can come up with is essentially to disavow their own words. Well, I think it's really alarming. And to pick up on a theme of just a few moments ago, it's it's not only harmful to their followers and to their supporters, but it's really 
insulting <laughs> to their supporters because it certainly signals um, that they either don't think that their supporters are worthy consumers of the information that they're <laughs> that they're being furnished with, or that our democracy and that sort of how we talk about voting, how we talk about our elections, how we talk about any number of issues, that everything is performative, that everything is just sort of for the shtick. Um, and and that's really serious and, and really disturbing. David, um, Powell has responded to some of the coverage of this court filing, and she says her words have been misinterpreted, that she stands by her legal opinions, um, again, not facts, opinions. Can you help us understand the distinction she's trying to make and whether or not this will impact how we approach election law moving forward? And is she going to be successful? Well, I don't know that I'm going to be successful in, in, <laughs> in getting inside Sidney Powell's mind and explaining exactly what she's thinking. But how I, much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I will say this. I, I want to take a it's step bizarre, back and right. Yeah, let, mean, let, let's 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 take the Wayback Machine to mid-November for a second, and remember that from you know almost. November 7th, when the election was called for Biden, um, through the inauguration, the same drumbeat was made by these uh, these con men um, that um, each time we lose in court and we lost over 60 cases. I mean, it's really hard to go one and 62 in in court, federal and state and lose to judges that your own candidate appointed um, uh, as regularly as they do. And I've litigated for a long time. Um, but they kept saying, well, the, you know, th- none of these cases were on the merits. They wouldn't hear the evidence. No one uh, remember the stacks of affidavits. If only we get our day in court, we'll prove our case. We'll prove all of these things are true because we know they are. And then they get their day in court. And uh, Sidney Powell's response is, well, look, I'm a liar. Everyone knows I'm a liar. If you don't believe I'm a liar, you're not a reasonable person. And so you shouldn't have believed my lies in the first place. That's very prominent in that filing and the motion to dismiss. What else is prominent is that they use these technical um, terms like jurisdiction and choice of law venue, which are um, not really technical. They're very substantive legal um, issues. And that's what most of their motion is about, even though they disparaged them in previous cases. The one thing that is not in this filing is any allegation that what she said is true. The best defense against defamation is, is what I said was entirely true. And she doesn't once make that claim. She has this opportunity in court. She has, she has the opportunity for discovery. She has the opportunity to put her case on. And not only is she seeking to avoid that, she is not even going to attempt to do that. She's not getting up to the plate and swinging and missing. She's refusing to step into the batter's box when she had her opportunity. Um, this is, um, I think Lucy said it really well, this is, this is an insult to the people that were invested in the, the lies that she told for so long and others told for so long. Um, we live in a country that is very narrowly divided, and yet there is a portion of uh, each side of the political spectrum that can't quite believe that their candidate might lose a close election in, in, in this country. And that's really unfortunate because you need to be able to convince. One of the things we talk about in elections all the time is the purpose of, of integrity and transparency in elections is to convince the loser and the loser supporters that they lost. 
And we can go back in history to, um, uh, you know, the Florida 2000 election, the uh, Washington governor's race in 2004, the Minnesota Senate race in 2008, all much closer than uh, the 2020 election. And um, there were processes there to convince the loser and the loser supporters that they lost. And the loser accepted that. This is the first time in American history we had a presidential com- candidate who refused to do that. He just refused to do that. And and I wonder, um, you know, Mike, I, I want to ask you about the, you know, what we do, what people can do to to hold liars accountable. But um, David, I just wonder if you're following, you know, we had a conversation with Joyce Vance uh, a couple of weeks ago about the impact that this that this lawsuit, this very lawsuit could have on the way cable news networks, for example, are held to account for the information that they disseminate. Are you, how are you thinking about that in terms of election security and and convincing people that the loser lost? Well, I think we have to look at how all of the media platforms are um, are performing in this. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not talking about necessarily changing defamation laws, particularly um, the famous New York Times versus Sullivan case and public figures in that, uh, although there are some who are suggesting changing those things now. Um, I, I, what I'm suggesting is that we know that media platforms and also social media platforms, very obviously, are being used to amplify lies and target them at people most susceptible to those lies. And I think it's the targeting that we have to really be concerned about. Um, and Fox News is one of those, uh, at least in, uh, on the right side, um, that, that's dealing with that. And of course, when Fox News wasn't uh, willing to amplify the lies enough, we saw the prominence of places like Newsmax and OANN um, and people starting to rely on those things. And I see this all the time when people engage me on things like Twitter. Um, they will constantly um, uh, send me links to articles that have appeared on extreme um, news sites to justify their positions. I think we need to take a hard look at this. This is going to be the damage that's been done is going to take us decades to fix. This is not going to be fixed by a single law passed by a single Congress. It's not going to be fixed by one president. It's not going to be fixed by one state. But we have incredibly to me, Republicans in the state of Georgia holding out Governor Kemp and Secretary Raffensperger as so-called rhinos, Republicans in name only. And I know bo- I, I know them both very well. I know uh, Brad Raffensperger uh, particularly well. He is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative Republican. Um, and there's absolutely no question about that. And not only that, I mean, in my view, he's an American hero. He ran an incredibly competent, secure, transparent election under um, I- incredibly difficult conditions and with very narrow margins. So, Mike, over to you. Other than billion-dollar defamation lawsuits, uh, what are the other ways that we can hold liars accountable and find some patchwork of shared truth to ground our political discourse um, with the with the context of everything David just laid out for us? How are you thinking about this? So, the danger here is that we are in a a moment in time where there is actually an industry that is built on fomenting uh, the undermining of confidence in our elections and in our democracy itself. And it's important to understand that the beauty of what we have as a system, as nerdy, as wonky, as geeky as it is, is really literally the process itself, as David is saying. That's, That's literally the strength of American democracy. 
It's these small tactical things that provide confidence in the system that is the beauty of the system. We talk about the peaceful transfer of power, and of course, that's a part of it, but that's all predicated on confidence in the system. And so what is important, and again, this is a value that is increasingly going to become important uh, in terms of our civic virtue, is not just saying being a passive participant and saying and having that confidence. I believe that there has to be vocal ostracization of those that are seeking to undermine the confidence in our system, because if we allow it to become legitimized, we start to see what happened this election cycle, which was this. You started to see these fake uh, news stories coming out. And it's important to understand, if you looked at public polling within 72 hours of the November contest, there were no issues. Nobody had any issues. The public was said, okay, fine, he won, it's over. By high numbers, high 60s, people were like, okay, Joe Biden won. It was when the Trump misinformation machine started to begin and realize, okay, this is going to be our strategy, that the numbers started to collapse. And then suddenly people are going, oh, wait a second. If Trump is saying that something went bad, then things went bad. We then have that echoed on the floor of our, you know, the Cathedral of Democracy in, in our Congress, where people were starting to say, oh, well, you know, whether there was election fraud or not, millions of Americans believe that that happened. And so we should be giving that voice and I'm going to represent that voice. So it's like, it's a way to amplify the lie. And that, that becomes the, the danger again, too, because there is a party at this moment in time that believes that it has lost in the marketplace of ideas, is no longer trying to compete for majorities, and is going to continue to use these types of tactics to pull off these wins. Look, it's not just that that Georgia uh, lost so narrowly, although that is a huge part of it. A big part of this is the symbolism of the fact that they lost Georgia. You, you can't win as a Republican Party without Georgia. Now, it, it wasn't necessary to get to 270, but they also lost Arizona. They're losing states that are central pieces to the coalition. And what they're realizing is it's because their ideas are not competitive in these states because they've been trending away for a long time. And as a result, the only solution is to start attacking that process. And as I mentioned earlier, the actual process of voting, as mundane, as geeky, as nerdy, as bureaucratic as it is, really is the beauty of the system. That's the integrity of the system. It's the confidence of the system. Everything else that comes after that is what everybody views as the politics that we have come to know um, in, in, you know, throughout, throughout all of our history, but it takes each, you know, the, the process of counting ballots, the confidence ensuring that they were cast with integrity, that they were counted securely. That's what makes the whole system work. And so uh, again, ostracization, the legal stuff, of course, but, but simply not allowing that to become commonplace, I think is incredibly important. It's not terribly dissimilar from people who, who, who equate not wearing masks 
as equally valid science with those who do. Right. They're not equal. This is not a both sides issue. It's not right. a both sides issue. Yeah. And we can't allow it to become that because it starts to threaten public health in the case of masks and the health of our democracy in the case of, of some of this misinformation. So I want to get to what we learned this week about the perpetrators of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. An NBC News analysis of FEC filings found that in the five weeks after the election, those who would later be charged in the insurrection increased their political donations by 75% compared to the five weeks leading up to the election. And in total, the Trump team and you know his aligned groups, including the RNC, raised $207.5 million in the 19 days after the election. And all of that is according to NBC. And I bring this up because this, this story is important because it, it reveals the effectiveness of this big lie that the election was stolen in motivating Trump supporters and including, you know, including the insurrectionists. But it also tells you the the the, the commitment to choose an issue like this to use for fundraising purposes inside the context of a campaign it is a it's like planting a flag that you really can't pull out right it's it's staking a position that you that you have no intention of reversing if you're going to go use that issue as something to raise money on um there there's no coming back for that from that so it, it was extremely persuasive and it also signals just how um uh committed they were to this to this, to this, to this line, to this rhetoric. So, David, um, help us think through how this big lie, going all the way back to Trump's claims about voting by mail, through the claims after the election, impacts how voters and elected officials, as two separate groups of people, think about election integrity. Yeah, it actually goes farther back than that. I mean, if you think about it, it was uh, in August of 2016, uh, then candidate Trump started talking about the election being rigged. And that mirrored what we were seeing out of Russian propaganda outlets at the same time. Shortly uh, after the election, even though he won, and even after the inauguration of 2017, he claimed that there were millions of uh, fraudulent votes. And that's the only reason he lost the popular right. vote by nearly 3 million. And yeah. in fact, he cited a report I wrote uh, back <laughs> when I was at Pew. And I, I had a I had a moment in time where I was on Anderson Cooper a lot talking about the fact that the report I wrote said nothing about millions of fraudulent votes at all. And and he continued that. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, um, right after the pandemic hit, rather than focusing on some of the um, the health considerations that we as a society needed, he was he was beating the drum about uh, the problems with mail ballots. Um, even though he votes by mail, he continues to vote by mail to this day, even though um, states uh, and, and both Mike and Lucy have pointed this out, this is uh, mail voting is something that has definitely not historically had a democratic slant. If anything, it's had a Republican slant to it. It tends to be preferred by older um, white voters disproportionately. Um, and it has been implemented in states by Republican secretaries in states like Arizona, Washington, Colorado. Um, uh, so this is, this is something that, uh, that does not have a partisan slant to it at all. And the, um, the ability to use the White House as a um, platform for spreading these lies. And I think you're exactly right. The fundraising is incredibly telling. It is, uh, you know, as, as they always say, follow the money. 
Um, this is this is largely about money. This is largely about um, former President Trump trying to protect himself against what we know is going to be an onslaught of uh, criminal and civil liability that he's going to have to face. Um, and the problem is it, it filters down to these public servants. Um, if you look, I, I, I just uh, rewatched the movie Recount this past weekend. I really encourage everyone to do it. It's a little bit jarring because Kevin Spacey has a starring role. But if you can put that aside, um, y- y- what you see in 2000 was very different. It was a narrow, narrow election, much, much closer than any election, any state election we saw in 2020. And there were legitimate um, ballot issues in that. And they were largely caused by both a Republican secretary of state and a Democratic county supervisor of elections in in the state of Florida. So it was caused by both parties. And they had to try to um, determine the voters intent um, after incompetence by election officials had led to problems. 2020 was the exact opposite. We had extreme competence by election officials, and they had to face a torrent of lies that said the election was stolen when in fact the election was much more auditable, secure, and transparent than we had ever seen. And this is really difficult. I I always say this about election officials. There's no headline on the Wednesday after an election that everything went great. You usually only know the names of election officials if if something went wrong or something is perceived to have gone wrong. They don't make a lot of money. They don't get a lot of fame. They don't get a lot of credit. These are these are not people who are going into this for their self-interest. They are true public servants. And I have talked to so many of them who have shared the death threats they've received. I've heard these death threats. I was on a call with a secretary of state who said, I have to get off the phone. I'm at home. I'm at home and my house is under siege by protesters. She has a four-year-old son talking to another who had to have police escorts while he and his children, a Republican local election official, he and his children were out and about for months after the election. So these things have consequences. It's not just, and Mike is completely right, both Mike and Lucy, the consequences to our, the overall health of our democracy are, are severe, but they also have real world personal consequences to individuals, to people who are public servants who are just trying to do their jobs. Um, and uh, frankly, it's uh, it, it's incredibly disheartening for me to see these people. We are losing a lot of people who are election professionals because they just can't do it anymore. I've had several say to me, I am not going to be doing this again in 2022 because I just can't do it anymore. And the expertise we're losing, the competence, the patriotism, is um, is something that uh, is going to take years to rebuild. Mike, we talked about Trump's new PAC and their fundraising back in December. And part of that conversation was that Trump and the Republican Party were using the election challenges to raise money, which they did. But how should we be thinking about the people who used Trump's election challenges to fundraise? What is their responsibility for the attack? Well, they're just as complicit, I think, as the people who were actually there storming the Capitol, right? They were fueling it. They were financing it. And what we're realizing was these are not spontaneous events. It's also why I've you know, said here on, on Politicology that I don't think that this ends. I think this is just the beginning. There's not only money to be made out there, but there's political hay to be made with a constituency of people that have basically feel that they have already lost America, that it's already gone. And when you believe that, you start to take on this peculiar martyr syndrome where you think that what you're doing is somehow justified. It's some some sort of Alamo fight. It's some sort of, you know, mythology of the lost cause. 
And, and there's money, there's money to be made in, in people who are willing to sacrifice their reputations and their lives in certain instances and willing to take arms and, you know, get involved with these crazy ideas of kidnapping governors and, and, and undermining democracy. Um, and, and so, so it's a business and it's not going to go away because again, look, I tend to believe, as I've shared with you here before many times, Demography is destiny. It explains so much of what is happening. And we are entering a 20-year period, and I think it's a very specific time frame, where demographically we are witnessing a dramatic decline in the, 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 the white share, especially the non-college-educated white share of the American electorate that feels hopeless. They feel that it is that America is gone, that America is not America anymore, and many of them would rather then adjust and 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 change and expand the american idea they choose to regress they choose to fight and they choose to say that if it's not a white christian nation it's not america and i'm going to go down swinging and so it's become an industry it's become a political movement that has limited itself in its ability to reach other people because it doesn't want to and so the, it, the, it, extremism is the natural outgrowth of that mentality. And we are going to watch these unfortunate and dangerous developments uh, characterize our politics for probably the next couple of decades. Lucy, I want to talk about the Justice Department now releasing online communications dating back to December of 2020, revealing coordination, essentially demonstrating that members of so-called militia groups, including the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, Three Percenters, and more, were planning not for a peaceful rally, but for a violent attack on our nation's seat of government. Kelly Meggs, who is the Florida leader of the Oath Keepers, said in private messages obtained by prosecutors that he'd been in touch repeatedly with Proud Boys leadership. And in one message, he wrote, Trump's staying in He's going to use the emergency broadcast system on cell phones to broadcast to the American people. Then he will claim the Insurrection Act. So, you know, I can't help but think of the debate when Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Everybody remembers that. We saw Trump refuse to distance himself from these types of groups, um, you know, all the way back to the 2016 campaign. So how should we be thinking about Trump's role for priming these militias to think he was giving them instructions? That particular militiaman also was part of a discussion of escaping to Kentucky and bringing all of these um, similarly oriented freedom fighters to some big farm on in Kentucky. And you can see how far the delusions go. There's there's discussion of how at one piece of land in Kentucky, there's a lot of tree cover and that'll be good because of the drones that are inevitably going to be monitoring them. Oh my them. God, I didn't see this. I think through that story, through the story of donations by some of these rioters to Trump in the aftermath of the election, and also even thinking about what we were talking about earlier about Sidney Powell, there's a common thread here, which is about the degree to which this has become truly cult-like. Um, you know, one of the people who is now facing federal charges, a, a guy from San Antonio who was a Capitol rioter, he had only ever given $250 to Trump before November of last year. After that, 
he has given more than $1,000. But more interestingly, he that $1,000 between November and January occurred in 40 discrete donations. So what does that tell you? So that's an average of like 20 some dollars. It means that he was getting spun up. I should also add his donation to Trump in 2016 was his only political donation ever. Wow. Up until November of 2020, he had given once to any candidate ever. It was to Donald Trump in the 2016 cycle. He then gave 40 times to Trump, the RNC, Trump-related PACs between November and January. When you just think about the mental state of someone like that, that is a person who's like watching the news, consuming content and is like, I need to send a little bit more, right? It is, it really, really underscores this sense that these people were impacted and a lot of them probably still are. And there are many people who are, and we probably don't even realize by them, are by this, by this cult mentality. The same goes for this idea of the kind of middle layer of the organizers of these riots that they were talking about going to um, land in Kentucky. I think people who have um, who have friends or family members who deal with um, mental health issues, it's hard to read some of these stories and not think that this sounds like something that looks a little bit like mania. Like this idea that these random anonymous everyday Trump supporters are being monitored by the government by drones. It just shows the the reach of this this disinformation. And what's so offensive about it, and this is why I go back to the Sidney Powell thing, is that you have not just in defense of, you know, crazy, crazy disinformation, but also justifying that their hands are clean. You have regular Republican consultants that many listeners have never heard of, the people who are relatively anonymous talking about this in interviews and sort of saying like, well, these people were just crazy. We don't have anything to do with that. A consultant who's a sort of middling Republican consultant about town in DC gave an interview to NBC where he said, I think the things that's, that's clear is that the people who took over the Capitol are not interested in the political process. They donated to campaigns after the votes had already been cast. They are only interested in the chaos, not the process. That is so disingenuous. Are you kidding? <laughs> it is. It is. But it is the it's the Sidney Powell defense. Like, well, yeah, we were spinning you up, but it's why were you taken in by it? It's hard to hear that or read that and not think that there's nothing hyperbolic about comparing what's at play in the Republican Party and the broader conservative movement to any number of cults. Um, You know, people basically thinking that they need to start tithing or sending tons of little packets of money because it's a crisis. People talking about going to land somewhere because they're being monitored and they're, you know, all going to go hide away together. People thinking that, you know, this, this important figure, leader figurehead is going to, you know, use the the national broadcast system. This sounds like any number of cults that we know about. It sounds like, you know, Waco or or, you know, uh things that go on with Scientology, just this complete takeover of of people's lives. This is not a matter of reasonable minds disagreeing. And the Republican consultants who make money on this, who perpetuate um, these candidates who speak to these messages, they're happy to 
wipe their hands of it. They're perpetuating it. Yes. They are perpetuating perpetuating it. it and profiting from it. Mike, just last week, we talked about some of the ways Republicans are attempting to whitewash the attack. And I wonder how you think, um, you know, evidence that these groups were coordinating well in advance and, and not to attend a peaceful political rally, um, actually debunk their revisionism, but actually more importantly, is it going to matter? There's so much to unpack here. And I think, I think Lucy was really hitting on something important. Folks, this is, this is on, this is radicalization. This, if these people had Middle Eastern Arab names, and if we were transferring Donald Trump's name for Osama bin Laden's, the same dynamic, we would be viewing this as Islamic radicalism. This is, this is what has happened online. It, it is cult-like, but it's even broader than that. It's the radicalization of an extraordinarily large swath of people for political ends. There's this apocalyptic sense that people have been inculcating themselves with these consultants, these campaigns, these messagings, and this media ecosystem for so long that the end game is literally viewed as the end game. So when you hear consultants start to distance themselves from that, because make no mistake, they know what they're peddling in. They know when they're selling this to the Republican base that it's garbage, but they know that they're using it as a motivating tool with an ever-shrinking base They need to hyper-motivate their folks to get their propensity, meaning their likelihood to vote up and increase it. And to then wash their hands of it or try to pretend it didn't happen afterwards um, is, it's not only disingenuous, candidly, it's, 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 it's immoral, it's evil. It's, and it's extraordinarily dangerous. Will it work? I think it may work in the short term, but this is what, what happens. The end of this is when you lose control of the monster that you've created. It's exactly like those U.S. senators who have been feeding this beast for so long and then find themselves on January 6th with the barbarians knocking down the door hunting for Mike Pence. They created this. They not only incited it and fomented it, and it's not like it just began one day at a rally that got out of control, This is the logical conclusion of an entire industrial complex financed to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars over a very sustained period of time. This was the end game. This is the end game. And the goal has not yet been achieved. So uh, it's, it's, it is disingenuous. Ron, to, to watch people wash their hands of it. Will it work? I think it will work only because this, this, the size and scope of what we're talking about has gotten so large and so out of hand that you can't point to any one person's complicitness in it. It's an entire industry. It's an entire hierarchy. It's an entire culture uh, that has fed this beast for so long that there isn't any one person that's complicit in it. It's an entire cadre of folks and it's an entire industrial class. It's an entire professional class that has made this all work for so long. There's one other piece of this that I think is kind of interesting to think about that really dovetails what with what Mike has said today and on many other 
episodes, which is what is driving this among the people who are so susceptible to radicalization. And in some of the coverage of some of these rioters of of their political donations, the vast majority to Trump, there was um, a mention in some of the coverage about the fact that some of them had, had given to other candidates in recent years. And and I'll tell you who those candidates are because I think it actually goes to something Mike has talked about a lot, which is that this is not just a matter of, these are not like people who are, you know, just really, really worried about, you know, over-regulation of the free market or, you know, making sure we have limited government. These are people who are very, very worried about their ongoing American way of life. And, and I'll tell you the names of some of the other candidates that people who've been charged from the Capitol riots uh, have donated to. And I, I want to give the caveat that I am not rem- remotely putting those candidates in the same basket as Trump. But I think you'll pick up on something interesting, which is that among the other candidates who these people have supported in the recent past, it's people like Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, um, the the guy who had the horns and the you know fur thing who stormed the Capitol has given to Andrew Yang many times. And I don't at all mean to suggest that Bernie Sanders or Tulsi Gabbard or Andrew Yang are the same as Donald Trump. They are far from it. But they are all politicians who've been successful in growing a following very, very quickly really uh, usurping traditional channels of communication, talking directly to their supporters, and bringing a message that appeals to people who feel a deep dissatisfaction with how things are going and have shared a message of, it's not your fault, it's this way. And so you, it's interesting to think about that connection because, because there, there's a big difference between... <laughs> being, say, an Andrew Yang supporter and a Donald Trump supporter in terms of what policies you're voting for. But when you just think about the kind of emotion that is associated with that, it it appears to come from a place of desperation. And that makes people very, very susceptible to extreme abuse by people like Donald Trump, by people like that Republican consultant that we talked about who sort of threw up his hands and said, well, there are just dumb people in the world. Really alarming and despicable. It's Not just immoral, despicable. Me. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's there these Trump and Republican politicians and the RNC and the Republican machinery, the way that they're trying to wash their hands of this, they're gaslighting their supporters. They're gaslighting people who I think many of whom really believed in earnest that this was an acceptable thing to do because Donald Trump needed them, because the election had been stolen, because Sidney Powell and, you know, Fox News hosts say that this is horrible. But then the moment that the moment that the kind of the shades come down, you actually you talk about draining the swamp. You have this little elite group of Republican consultants and Donald Trump and Sidney Powell and Fox News hosts saying like, who would believe that, you idiots? That is yeah. the ultimate. Joke's on right, you. That's the ultimate kind of like disgusting political elitism that that really drives this kind of polarization and radicalization. Earlier this week, we saw yet another mass shooting in Colorado coming just days after the string of murders of several Asian Americans in Atlanta last week. And both of these attacks have renewed calls for gun reform, but this 
debate, if you can call it that, has been a stalemate for years. The debate over the Second Amendment, what it says and how it should be interpreted aside, there is actually a lot of common ground on this issue. Expanded background checks and waiting periods for firearm purchases have widespread bipartisan support, yet have seen very little movement in Congress. And in the wake of Sandy Hook, West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Pennsylvania Republican Pat Toomey brokered a deal to expand background checks, and it was even supposed to have the support of the NRA until they backed out at the last minute. And the bill ultimately failed 54-46 because in the Senate, you need 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. Lucy, we're hearing a lot from certain senators about their desires for bipartisanship, especially as the Senate weighs potentially doing away with or at least modifying the filibuster. Do you think bipartisanship which seems like a foreign word at this point, is even possible on this issue? And if so, what might it look like? What would it have to look like to get it done? Well, I think that gun control is actually a really good candidate for (laughs) a bipartisan package through which to do away with the filibuster for a few reasons. One of them is that we have a lot of evidence that this is has to be done federally to get control of gun violence because it's too easy to, federalism doesn't really work here. It's so easy to go across a state line, buy a gun, go back somewhere else. I mean, we even saw that in a a way in Boulder at a a lower level, but Boulder had actually tried to pass um, ordinances against AR-15s, right? But and that was overturned by a court last Mm -hmm. week. But but even if that had- Days before the the, the shooter bought the gun. But even if that had been on the books, sort of doesn't matter because he could go to Denver or he could go to, you know, Fort Collins, whatever. Um, and and sort of we see this in states that have tried to do common sense gun reform, states like Illinois, which has a huge, huge problem with gun violence, but super easy to go across the border to a neighboring state. Um, and And so I think we can see why we need a federal bill here. I think that there are some provisions that we can really pretty quickly outline as common sense provisions like red flag laws. Um, that would be where if if a person has a reasonable belief that a loved one or a colleague, someone that they know uh, is in a state where they may do something dangerous, uh, I mean, a mental state or a you know, headspace, uh, that they can take action to help make sure that a gun doesn't get into their hands. Um, that's a common sense provision. Uh, that would have had a big impact if the family of the Boulder shooter had felt they had access to a system like that. They talked about how they believed he was paranoid, that he was uh, playing with guns, that it was a worrisome situation. They didn't know or believe they had access to a system to do something about that. Universal background checks, um, mandatory waiting periods. uh, And then I think getting real about the fact that The Second Amendment does not mean anything under the sun that we could call a gun. There's a really big difference between an AR-15, which is modeled on military-grade weapons, to these are guns that are meant to kill, that some of those kinds of weapons just, we do not have to extend Second Amendment protections to those kinds of weapons, just like we don't believe that the Second Amendment means that you can go 
uh, make bombs in your garage and drive around town with them, right? And, and so I think there. Yeah, I was going to, and just how the second, the First Amendment doesn't mean you can go yell bomb in a theater, right? We there are certain limitations to these provisions, right? And and so there are all of these just really common sense provisions that I think there would be uh, enthusiasm for, uh, widespread public support. Um, and and would they solve all of the issues? Of course not. I I would suggest to everyone that they they prepare themselves for the fact that every time you talk about one of these recommendations, someone a, a gun nut will tell you about why that wouldn't have stopped this scenario or that scenario. And the idea is, yes, we we are not able, short of like you know putting everyone in a straitjacket in a padded room. Yes, we are always probably anytime that we're trying to maximize liberty, we're going to continue to have scenarios where things slip through the cracks, and we're going to continue to iterate to try to make our community safer. But just that is not an argument against comprehensive gun reform. Now, I think the challenge is whether or not moderate Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, people like Kirsten Sinema, um, moderate Republicans are going to really be willing to do this. And it's appalling, but true, because gun ownership is so much more at play in voting patterns, in um, political demographics and affiliation than we realize. And I just started reading a book called The Gun Gap by uh, a researcher named Mark Jocelyn. And a lot of it is about how predictive gun ownership is of political affiliation. So the likelihood of voting for Republicans, of being a Republican, and you can actually make the link between becoming a gun, gun owner and then becoming a person who's very, very likely to vote for Republicans. And when you think about some of our swing states, they also, many of them happen to be gun states, um, states like Arizona, states like Michigan, states like Wisconsin. And so I think that the challenge will be what not whether or not we can make the case that there is broad popular support for this, but whether or not those other factors of who's not only likely to vote as a Republican, but who are very, very reliable voters gun owners, you could continue to see this challenge where that is such a powerful constituency that it, it is a very, very hard, hard hurdle to get over. And I hope we can because, but we don't want to be in this pattern of needing mass shootings to to encourage us to do something about this. Mike, I want to take a minute to talk about Lauren Boebert. On Monday, about two hours after the shooting in Boulder, Boebert's campaign sent a fundraising email pledging that she will fight calls for common sense gun control laws with everything I have. How much of the fundraising appeal around this debate in particular and other hot button debates more broadly get in the way of actually governing? I think it's a primary obstacle, right? Because it's it's um, a sign of intensity amongst supporters. It's what allows uh, a candidate who is performative, which is increasingly a characteristic of our politics. It's not necessarily ideological. It's performative, um, gives these elected officials, these politicians, a national platform. It's important to understand that really the the, the guts of conservatism uh, as people of our age, and granted, I'm much older than than the other guests on this show are, 
Um, you know, what was really driving the Republican coalition at one point in time was economic conservatism, was fiscal conservatism. You don't hear about any of that anymore. All that really remains in the Republican Party and the American right are these cultural issues of which guns and gun control is a central piece of those. As Lucy was just accurately pointing out, there's a direct correlation between gun ownership and your political views. When you understand that what is happening in the American right is about a sense of cultural loss, you then understand why everything becomes performative. And there's a need to become more extreme to be viewed as a defender of our way of life. So to answer your question, once once you understand that performative nature, you you understand Bobert, you understand Marjorie Taylor Greene, you understand Donald Trump, you understand Matt Gates, you understand Louis Gohmert, you understand the ridiculousness of what the Republican Party has become because it's no longer trying to be part of the governance process. It's trying to preserve, protect, and defend, quote-unquote, an American way of life, of making America great again, returning to this mythological land of Americanness and American identity. And central to that also is this idea of the Second Amendment, right, which the rhetoric is often about um, these guns weren't created to be hunting guns. They were created for revolution. They were created just for this moment to defend ourselves against an oppressive government and a militia is required to take on the military. It's our only, it's our last stand against moments like this. And so when the, again, the, the apocalyptic terms, the end of culture as they, as these adherents see it is all part of developing uh, and speaking to this this demographic group, which increasingly feels alienated from their own country. That's a huge opportunity to raise a ton of money, provide an extraordinary platform for a politician at the national stage, as long as it is, and this is an important word, performative. It's not about actually trying to accomplish anything. It's about demonstrating how committed I am to a cause how much of a champion I am for this lost cause, for this mythology that we're all holding on to as the Alamo is under siege. That's what these politicians are trying to accomplish, most of them quite successfully. Well, speaking of mythology, I think that a way to kind of put a finer point on this, just to to quickly add on, is that there's a lot of mythology around guns as an American tradition. And if you actually look at the tradition of gun ownership, it's actually really exploded in this century. And actually, the the proliferation of weapons like AR-15s, that's a very new phenomenon. And you can even track back, I mean, to kind of keep staying on some of the demographic trend themes that Mike talks about a lot, you can even track back massive purchases of AR-15s around both of Barack Obama's elections. So you can really kind of see that this is a new issue. This is not a an undermining the American way of life issue. This is an ongoing but new issue that is a, a modern a modern problem. And, and that's really important when talking about this, I think, because it really, once you've established that, you can really cut out this idea that we are, again, just sort of appending what our founders wanted. So I want to play a little game here for a second. Because what I really want to get at is how can we think about governing in this environment? How do we break through that performative stalemate? So 
um, we're strategists, all of us, political strategists who've worked in this space. Imagine we have a client and the client is the American people and they've just hired us to figure out a way to get something done on gun control. Where do you start, Mike? Well, I'd start where I'd always start, which is with the data. And again, I also believe that in political campaigns and in political movements, history is made on the margins. So you're not going to, you're not shooting for 50% of the Republicans and somehow convince them of what is right and what is wrong. I would do exactly what I did and we did together, candidly, with the Lincoln Project. Where is that demographic? That's the way I would approach this as a strategist. And I can tell you, it's that white college-educated suburban mother that, that swung this last election. The Republican Party is losing voters in the cultural war in a way that it has not since the Southern strategy in the mid-1970s, since, since the Nixon uh, administration. The Southern strategy and cultural wars are now shrinking the Republican electorate. It's making it more intense, but they're losing the, the really critical college-educated voter, not in droves, but by enough to actually move these voters. So where would I begin? I would work right there with that demographic on exactly these issues, characterizing it specifically the way that Lucy's talking about it and demonstrating that they are the ones that have the balance of power. And simply moving 4 or 5%, right, that Bannon line number we talked about nationally, it's even bigger with women on this issue. Once you start, once Republicans lose 3, 4, 5% of their base on this issue, it will change. There will be movement on gun reform legislation. There absolutely will be because without that margin, you got, you're talking about four or five Senate seats going away. Just, just those three to four percent of the Republican base. Keep in mind, and it's not, it is also beyond this issue. The Republican party now needs to have 100% unanimity in most marginal states, if it's going to hold on to these seats, that's extremely difficult. That also explains to our previous conversation why voter suppression tactics and lying about election results and redistricting all become central to the party's fortunes and its very survival. You To beat the Republican Party on any issue, you need to look at where you can move 3, 4, 5% of the voters off of this cult that has developed, and you start to see tectonic shifts in public policy. So sorry, long way of answering, but that's where it needs to begin. And it needs to be, the, the, the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert specifically have made themselves champions on this by doing podcasts with AR-15s in the background, it helps them individually. It hurts the overall brand immensely because she is losing more people, more women, more college-educated suburban women who don't celebrate gun culture the way that she is, then she is building and bringing back into the party. And that's how, uh, that frankly, that's how we won in 2020, was highlighting the cultural extremism of these candidates, um, where cultural issues are, are, are not just um, uh, a feature anymore. They are actually central to Republican identity. Lucy? I think that this is actually an issue where you could see the kind of down-home, gaff-prone kind of style 
of Joe Biden being a huge strength. Remember a few years ago when Joe Biden got a lot of flack because he talked about kind of thinking about Jill being at home and going out front with a shotgun? That was sort of a slice of Americana that, you know, sort of sounded funny. Uh, but really, I think is something that one must appeal to when talking about these issues. So I think that a baseline should be affirming that we're not doing away with the Second Amendment. We can't, but we wouldn't, even if we wanted, we wouldn't want to, even if we could, and that responsible gun ownership is fine, and that it is actually sort of incumbent on responsible gun owners to set limits about kind of how guns are purchased, how guns should be sort of allowed to trade hands, what the process is on the whole, and and then use that as a way to sort of to kind of pivot into this idea that responsible gun ownership, part of being a responsible gun owner is agreeing to a framework <laughs> whereby we prevent guns from being in the hands of bad actors. So I think that uh, people who are gun owners are among the best spokespeople for this, um, not necessarily just sort of like people who are activists about about curbing the sale of guns. Um, I think that the family stories are are very compelling, but I think that that this really, really also should come from people who themselves are longtime gun owners and involved in in gun culture, for lack of a better term. Now that we're up to speed on the major stories of the week, what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or that our listeners might have missed? but also that will influence our politics in a way we might not expect. Lucy? This week was Equal Pay Day. Megan Rapinoe, the soccer star, was part of a event at the White House. And in that sort of, she was highlighting some of the struggles of female athletes. And that was really interesting because at the same time, it's March Madness. And we have these women who are NCAA basketball players pointing out that the conditions for them at March Madness at the tournament, and I'm probably going to botch terms because I really don't watch sports, so I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) We're not remotely like the men's, right? They had no weight room to speak of. They did not have the kind of swag bags that the men's athletes were receiving. And there was a public outcry about this, which is totally understandable. And the NCAA has made some commitments about fixing this. But People were quick to talk about Title IX, and Title IX is a component of this, but most of what was happening was actually to do with um, the market for women's sports. And I started to think about this, about how many of the people who, in, in in the Venn diagram of people who follow March Madness and people who were upset about the women being treated unfairly, how many of them made brackets for the women's teams? How many of them were watching the women's games? How many of them, if they attend games in person, have bought season tickets or tickets to women's basketball games, NCAA, WNBA? And so I'm not just trying to fall back into some kind of libertarian, well, the market is a supply and demand issue. And it's not just that. I just started to think about how much we probably need to 
examine our own implicit bias about some of these things, in this case, in women's sports, but in the background of this larger discussion of how women are compensated across a range of fields. And I have heard from people who follow sports that women's basketball is actually very exciting and a really fun <laughs> sport to watch. And, and so as I thought about that, I thought, maybe we all should be thinking about small actions that we could make as we sort of, you know, wage war behind our keyboards on Twitter to correct some of these issues and sort of start to change some of how we talk about these within our own, within our own communities. So I guess this is a story and a little under the radar, but I think maybe this weekend take in one of those women's basketball games. If your local cable provider doesn't air them, you should ask them to maybe go to the website of, um, you know, the sports teams that you are following and buy some of the women's um, swag. But it just made me think about how there actually are some, I really believe in the power of collective action. And there maybe are some things, I'm not saying it's not up to leaders or the NCAA or colleges, they have a role in this, but there are things that we could start to do to look inside ourselves and think, maybe I need to make a few changes to help make this better. So I understand it's too late for brackets, but I don't know, go consume some women's NCAA basketball this weekend. I love that. Mike? Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was tasked by President Biden to lead a commission on uh, immigration reform. And uh, it has now reared its head. This is going to be an extraordinarily contentious discussion the way that it has been for the better part of uh, two, three decades now. The last time we got anything comprehensive done on immigration was 1986. Don't know how old y'all were in 1986, but it was a long time ago. Immigration reform is extraordinarily hard. It always is. It's a once in a generation dynamic. But we are now into the second generation of this not happening, and we are starting to see this bursting at the seams. Uh, you are also beginning to see the rhetoric of kind of the caravans and the crisis at the border and the swells of people showing up. Uh, Fox News is trying to frame this as, well, Joe Biden has become a magnet because now that Donald Trump is not securing the border, the entirety of uh, the population south of Mexico all the way down to uh, the tip of Chile is now trying to come to become, uh, you know, come to America. Uh, the truth, of course, is, is, is not anywhere near that. But what we are going to see, I think, is a very vigorous, very emotional debate on immigration reform. Um, we are also, uh, also, if we're honest with ourselves, coming to recognize some of the limitations. I'm being uh, genuous and gen uh, generous and diplomatic here of the Obama administration's policies, which was uh, can be characterized accurately as very anti-immigrant. Um, and Joe Biden's continuation of a lot of the Trump policies, at least to this point in, in, in his administration. Granted, it's very early. And the reason I bring that up is because there has to be some sort of border security. It has to be done humanely, but it has to be done. And both Democratic and Republican presidents and administrations have recognized that. I think we are at a, a breaking point where something needs to get done. And it's very similar to where we were at in 2008 when Barack Obama had a choice to make. Am I going to get health care done or am I going to get immigration reform done? This is the unresolved issue of the Democratic Party since 2008. They have to 
get this done. If they don't, they will suffer the consequences for a generation because there are too many people in their own base constituency who have waited too long for this not to happen. And so this issue, I think, starting this week is going to really catch fire. It is probably the single most emotional, visceral, divisive issue I have run across in 30 years of being a political professional. And um, it's going to absolutely um, characterize the Biden administration's success, at least early on in the first 100 days. So uh, my eyes are peeled for this one. Keep your eyes on it. It's going to be a big one. So I have just two quick things I want to mention. Well, first of all, Lucy, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern time, UConn plays Iowa on ABC. And actually every game of the women's basketball tournament is televised on ABC or the ESPN family of networks. So Jack Dorsey, the founder and CEO of Twitter, just sold his very first tweet, not as in he sold a tweet for the first time, although that is also true. He sold the very first tweet that he ever put up on Twitter. And how do you sell a tweet? Good question. You use an NFT, which is a non-fungible token. And this is part of the cryptocurrency uh, space. So if you're not familiar with those, I'm, you know, I'm not going to explain the whole thing here. But, but I'm just, I, he sold this tweet for $2.9 million for a single tweet. And, and I just think this is, I don't have strong opinions on NFTs yet. I'm, I do follow the crypto space um, uh, and, and Bitcoin in particular, but, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know enough about NFTs yet to have a strong opinion. I just think it is fascinating and I think it's a space to watch. Um, but I think there's, you know, my sense is that there's a lot of sort of garbage in the conversation. There's a lot of noise in the signal right now as it relates to NFTs. And it's a very exciting, uh, sort of emerging use of blockchain technology to, to facilitate the sale and ownership of digital assets. So think like digital art and, uh, and, and other things that, that are sort of intangible, but still constitute property that you want to be able to buy and sell. And I don't know how a tweet fits into that. It's a little bit baffling to me. But the fact that it did sell for $2.9 million sends a big signal that this is a space to um, to pay attention to. And I'm sure that everybody on Twitter is going to have very strong opinions about this. So we'll see what they say. But I was I was um, I think that's a watch this space as well. Also, uh, I just want to mention Dr. Rachel Levine was confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, and she is the first openly transgender federal official ever confirmed by the Senate. And that is a huge win for uh, the LGBT community. Before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet, Lucy? At Lucy M. Caldwell on Twitter. Mike? You can find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike starts today because my tweets are going to be worth millions someday. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. And we loved having David Becker on the show today, but he had to run to an event. You can find him on Twitter at Becker David J. Thanks to Lucy and David and Mike for taking the time to have this conversation today. And I want to thank everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have questions or advice for us, or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode of The Roundup, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. If you enjoy the show, make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to help us grow, 
and continue the fight to protect our democracy, it would also help us tremendously if you could rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us rise in the rankings and really does help new listeners find the show. I'm Ron Steslow. This is Politicology. I'll see you in the next episode.